Welcome to 10.5, the official podcast of the OPP Association. My name is Scott Mills. And I'm Emily Brown, and we are the Strategic Communications Coordinators for the OPP Association, and your host for the 10.5 podcast, the official podcast of the OPP Association. The OPP Association is the sole bargaining agent for the close to 10,000 members of the Ontario Provincial Police in Canada. Our members are our focus and our strength. We aim to provide important information to our members and the public about matters that affect policing in the province of Ontario. Well, thanks, Emily. Um, this week, we have a very interesting uh, topic. It's, it's very timely as well with the month of uh, November, commonly being known as Movember. And this week, we have a very interesting topic, uh, how to prevent cancer. Uh, with our retired OPPA member, Jack Harkness. And uh, Jack uh, has invited his doctor, uh, Danny Vesperini, uh, to uh, come and join us today. And uh, Dr. Vesperini is uh, he's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's an affiliate scientist at Biological Sciences at uh, Sunnybrook Research Institute. He's also the director of the Male Oncology Research and Education Program, which is known as the MORE program at the Sunnybrook Odette Cancer Center. And uh, I feel very privileged to be able to host this podcast uh, with both of these esteemed guests. So welcome, Jack, and welcome, uh, Dr. Vesprini, to the 10-5 podcast. Thank you, Emily and Scott. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. Jack, why don't we kick it off with you? Uh, can you give us a little bit of your history with the OPP? Yes, I had uh, a little over 40 and a half years in policing. I was with the Guelph Police Service for two tenures, totaling 25 years, various assignments, the police chief in Exeter for three and a half, and with the OPP for 12 years. And that was shared between the Organizational Development Bureau and the First Nations Contract Policing Bureau. I retired in 2005. And what keeps you busy nowadays, Jack? Well, retirement has involved traveling between Florida and Snowbirds for a number of years. <laughs> Both my wife and I keep very active within the community volunteerism. Well, it's uh, an impressive career you've had. It's great to hear that you're um, you're active. And uh, thank you, uh, Jack. Thanks for your service. And uh we really appreciate you uh, reaching out to us. So thank you for that. And uh, I did uh, mention that uh, November is known as Movember. That's the campaign to raise awareness and funds for prostate cancer and men's mental health. And uh, Jack kindly reached out to the, uh, to the OPPA uh, suggesting that we do a podcast with his doctor and uh, Jack is just uh, wondering if you can explain what led uh, up to you feeling that this would be a good topic to have a chat here on the uh, podcast with uh, Dr. Vesperini. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I'll start off with a caveat. I've uh, waived my patient privacy rights in order to facilitate the podcast. My cancer journey, okay, it began in January of 2022 and February 2022 with two high PSA tests, 8.9 and 7.6 respectively. My urologist and I discussed a follow-up, and that was a biopsy. It involved one hit in a 12-core sample, equating to a Gleason score 7. Some of it, no doubt, 
Dr. Vespini will explain more detail. So the three words that shock anyone, you have cancer. Further follow-up involved a bone scan, MRI, and the assigned radiologist at the Stronic Cancer Center in Newmarket discussed a clinical study to wet active surveillance at the Sunnybrook Odette Cancer Center in Toronto. He recommended I acquaint myself with Dr. Danny Vesprini. He recommended I review a number of videos that Dr. Vesprini has out on YouTube. And in May of 2022, Dr. Vesprini and I established a doctor-patient relationship. Actor surveillance and hormone therapy was the treatment I started out with. The hormone therapy occurred over a window of 15 months. Dr. Vespini requested requisition, I'm sorry, a repeat of tests, MRI, bone scan, and target biopsy, and those were done in November of last year. A second lesion was discovered, and I was reclassified, and intervention choices were discussed in detail. The uh, stereotactic ablative radiation, or otherwise known as SABRE, was what was chosen, and it was involving five treatments, each one week apart, between February 8th and March 8th. An amazing friend of mine, whom I'd served with for 25 years on the Guelph Police Force, had passed away from prostate cancer mere weeks before my diagnosis, and I would hope that today is a bit of a tribute towards him. I have a brother, I have four younger brothers, and one brother, Again, no prior symptoms, was diagnosed with prostate cancer regarding a sample PSA test, and he's opted for surgery and is in recovery. He only got tested when I strongly encouraged him to do so. So it's so very important for all men to get their PSA tested regularly to facilitate early detection. Dr. Vespini is quite motivated and beyond his humanity and expertise, an amazing person. With cancer, you need a champion in your corner and he has certainly been that and more for me and my recovery. Currently, I'm registered with the Clinical Studies, Active Surveillance, and Genetic Counseling. Oh, Jack, uh, I, I think you're doing a very good thing here. You're sending shivers up my spine as you're talking. Um, uh, uh, thank you for for sharing all that. That's, that's very brave of you, and uh, I'm sure you're going to you're going to help somebody uh, not go down that path or, or catch it early and save their life. So um, in our talks, you were also very adamant uh, that we also uh, speak of breast cancer. And I, I know you don't uh, want to go down this road too far, but uh, can you explain just uh, uh, what you kind of want Dr. Besprini to, to uh, discuss about breast cancer? Yes. Thanks, Scott. I recommended a discussion regarding female breast cancer as it's another area of uh, Dr. Rasmini's expertise. I raised a topic for the benefit of our mixed audience and I cannot comment further other than Dr. Rasmini can take it away. Well, that's a perfect segue, actually. So thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll kick over to the doctor here. And it's great to have advice, obviously, of a, a cancer specialist for our listeners. So we're going to get on to prostate cancer screening. And just curious, how does that work? And what should all men do? And at what age? Yeah, so that's great. And thanks, Jack. It's really, really is nice to kind of hear people uh, explain their story and, and advocacy on all levels. Um, saves lives. You know, I, I you know, probably make this joke uh, later as well, but, you know, I did lots of research and, you know, intricate things and genetics and high-tech radiology and, 
but the reality is that awareness uh, saves more lives than a lot of the, the, the stuff that we do from a kind of high tech uh, research point of view. You know, I think, just, and just to kind of step back a bit, and I know we're, the, the title of this is prevention, but the reality is, is that we're trying to prevent for things like prostate cancer and breast cancer, at least up front, is we want to prevent people from dying of the disease or having other poor outcomes from a cancer point of view. There's not a lot of a priori prevention strategies that we're aware of. Prostate cancer, breast cancer are incredibly common. Uh, there probably are prevention mechanisms, don't get me wrong, and there's lots of research going on that's very worthy. But in general, what we know is earlier detection um, saves lives. Uh, and even in the context where sometimes it may not be a life or death situation, earlier prevention can allow people to have better outcomes long-term regards to quality of life. So for prostate cancer, I think, as a lot of people listening, there's been a lot of controversy over the years in regards to what we should do in regards to screening in general. So historically, the main type of screening, which started in the mid-80s, was a PSA blood test, which is, you know, very many men that are listening here or many women whose men in their lives have probably had that done. And, and we did see this significant increase in diagnoses of prostate cancers in the late 80s, early 90s, um, which I think we realized quite quickly is that we're finding a bunch of cancers that were very early and perhaps didn't need aggressive management. A couple of big trials were done where they randomized men, so half the guys got the PSA test, the other half didn't get the PSA test. And what they showed was in one of the trials that it, the men that were in the arm that were tested with PSA didn't necessarily have less chance of dying of prostate cancer compared to those uh, that did and didn't. And if you looked at the other trial, which is a bigger European trial, it did show that doing this PSA test as a screening uh, mechanism did save lives, but you had to treat a whole whack of guys to save lives. So there was a large recommendation that happened about a decade or so ago, which was mainly governmental uh, in the U.S., that advised against this PSA blood test. So you see this wave of general practitioners, family doctors going away from PSA screening the problem that most of us that are in the business or in you know clinical practice was that the problem wasn't finding early prostate cancers. That's that saves lives. The problem was is that doctors weren't behaving right, and there were people having their prostates removed or having radiation with very early cancer that could have just been watched. And unfortunately, I think um, these governmental uh, overseeing agencies overlook that part and just put this blanket statement out to not recommend PSA screening. And then we saw over the next five to 10 years, an increase in higher grade cancers that we hadn't seen in a long time because men weren't getting screened anymore. And I think we've all kind of backed up now. That's a real long way to answer your question, uh, which is we usually recommend that an average guy, once he turns 50, to start to have a good conversation with their family doctor or urologist, if they have one, about the pros and cons of having prostate screening. So PSA testing, uh, physical examination with the digital rectal exam, uh, to, to, to be aware of the fact that if you're screened, you may be found to have a very low-grade prostate cancer that doesn't need to be treated but may change your quality of life. I would argue that it's better to know and be observed, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, and it will allow us to pick up those people that have higher grade cancers that need to be treated sooner. So 50 is the main age that we start to discuss this. There's some controversy that we should stop doing it when guys hit their mid to late 70s. Again, that's somewhat controversial. 
mainly because we have data, some of which I've been involved in that shows that the chance that a man dies of prostate cancer increases as he gets older. So it's still something that I think we need to be aware of. If you have a family history, so your father had prostate cancer, your brother, uh, someone in your family had very early onset prostate cancer, so prostate cancer perhaps in their 40s or early 50s, which would be quite young to get prostate cancer, then we start to recommend having PSA screening at age 40 or 45. Not necessarily because we think that someone's going to get prostate cancer at that point, but it provides a good baseline to know what the PSA is. So these are kind of the general recommendations. There's a little bit of tweaking back and forth, depending if you're Canadian or American or European. So there may be some small changes in regards to what's recommended. But in general, the main thought is that once a man hits 50, unless he has a strong family history or other genetic predisposition, maybe a bit earlier, but at 50, discuss with your family doctor the pros and cons of PSA testing. My main advice is that if you have a family doctor or other care provider that doesn't believe in PSA testing and you still feel uh, uh, that it's an important thing to, to consider based on your personal principles or your family history, um, get that opinion from someone else because there are biases. It takes a long time to change clinical practice. You can't just all of a sudden have everyone turn around and, and, and change what they've been doing for the last 10 years. Uh, so sometimes there's disagreement between uh, people and their care providers and second opinions in that situation are important. Since we're on the topic of screening, um, there was it was in the news very recently that the age was lowered to 40, I believe, uh, beginning in 2024 for women for uh, breast cancer screening. And I, I'd just like to get your thoughts on women getting mammograms, the age being lowered, and what women should do in the interim if they want to get screened but find that they are not eligible. Yeah, so that's a very important thing that changed. I think a lot of us have been, because I treat breast cancer as well. So Jack may may have mentioned that. So I treat both prostate and breast cancer. But but, um, that's something that we've kind of been pushing for for a long time, mainly because we see breast cancers at earlier ages than prostate cancer in men. And in general, the screening recommendations have been 50 or above, unless there's a family history, of course, that we started sooner. But the, the types of cancers you find in younger women in their 40s are the ones that are potentially lethal. So finding it earlier in a woman has way more uh, clinical benefit than finding an early prostate cancer in a guy in his 40s who's unlikely to need to be treated. So, so in general, uh, the nice thing about breast cancer screening as opposed to prostate is breast cancer screening, you can be self-referred. So any woman can get breast cancer screening without having to be referred by a doctor. So they're allowed to present themselves. Uh, that's to, that's for many reasons. One of this is to decrease red tape and, and women can take charge of their own health. So if, if for whatever reason, a family doctor doesn't believe it, agree with it, which I think would be a bit crazy, but if they did, then that, that woman can go and get her mammogram done at one of the uh, mammogram centers just by self-referral coming in saying, I want to have this done. That is unlike... PSA testing, which requires a, uh, a requisition, so a blood work requisition, uh, and you have to pay for it as well. So mammogram is not uh, is covered by OHIP, uh, whereas PSA testing is not. So that's a big change. I think is a big positive movement towards uh, screening women for breast cancer because women that get in their forties, in general, will have more aggressive disease uh, than women that are much older. That's very great advice. Uh, that you're giving there, uh, Dr. Vesperini. Thank you for that, um, both for the men and women. And uh, 
I know I'm going to go and talk to some women in my life that are in the 40 to 50 range and say, hey, even if your doctor says no, you can go to one of these centers and get tested. I think that's a great idea. And uh, I didn't know uh, some of the stuff you're, you're saying about the early detection and just watching and things like that. So this is very, very valuable information for for our, our audience here. Um, so um, it is a very scary thought uh, for anyone to be faced with a, a cancer diagnosis. Uh, we don't have to say that twice. And uh, uh, I was just wondering if you could explain what happens with treatment decision-making for us upon a diagnosis doctor. Yeah, so I think uh, the, the, the one that tends to be more complicated is, is prostate cancer, mainly because there are multiple um, options with different pros and cons. Uh, in general, for all cancers, the management decisions are based on, you know, at what stage the, prost- the, the cancer is diagnosed at. So whether that be colon, prostate, lung, whatever it is, there are certain staging systems. Some of the traditional stages you might hear people talk about stage one, stage two, stage three. Um, prostate cancer doesn't necessarily use stages. It uses what we call risk categories. So that's based on what someone's blood, PSA blood work is, what their Gleason uh, score uh, is. That's the pathology. We now call that grade group, though. We're transitioning away from the old-fashioned Gleason score. A lot of people understand what that means. And whether or not you can feel or see the tumor uh, in the prostate itself. So, so in general, for prostate cancer, if someone has what we call low-risk disease, we recommend surveillance. So that, that's a cancer that, in general, doesn't get treated Um, Some men choose to get treated, which is not wrong for various reasons. There are some scenarios where you might treat it. But in general, that's a cancer that we know. And and I run that program here at Sunnybrook called Active Surveillance, where we just monitor prostate cancers. As long as you watch men with prostate cancer in this situation, that's with PSA blood tests, physical examinations, and doing an MRI plus uh, biopsies if needed, uh, the chance of dying of prostate cancer in the next 15 years is less than 1% as long as you watch it. So there's really no reason to treat those, but about one in four guys will eventually need to be treated. Once you start to get into what we call intermediate risk prostate cancer, uh, that's where we start to talk about treatments. And in, in essence, for these prostate cancers, unless there's a specific reason why one treatment is not good for a, a person, all the options, in my view, are equivalent. Men can have their prostate removed. They can have radiation with brachytherapy, that's seeds that get inserted inside uh, the prostate. There's sometimes you do a combination of, of the seeds and some external radiation or external radiation alone, as Jack explained about, with something called SABER, a very focused type of external radiation. You know, as long as we treat these cancers, the likelihood of dying them are very small. All the treatment options would be equivalent. Guys just get to pick which poison they prefer. Um, there's risks with surgery that uh, that are, you know, regards to urinary function, erectile dysfunction. There are different risks with radiation in regards to changes to bowel habits and bladder habits. So for some men, one is better than the other. Maybe they have poor uh, heart health, so maybe surgery is not good for them. Uh, or maybe they have a lot of issues with their, their bladder already, so it's better just to have the prostate removed. Once we start getting to higher risk cancers, uh, in general, then we start to talk about combination therapies. Uh, so guys that have surgery are very likely to need to have radiation afterwards, but that may be a good thing for them. Guys that choose radiation, we will have uh, hormonal therapy, which Jack uh, spoke about, uh, which we would use, uh, unlike in his situation, for longer periods of time. So the decision-making is important um, to have what we call multidisciplinary discussions. So have a conversation with the surgeon about surgery. 
have a conversation with the radiation doctor like myself about radiation. In the event that someone has even more significant disease and needs to be considered for some of the systemic agents like chemotherapy, then we need to see a medical oncologist. These are all different specialties. And then as a group, as a team, with those conversations regarding the pros and cons of all the therapy, patients can decide what makes most sense for them. You know, sometimes it's psychological. Sometimes people want the prostate out, and that makes a lot of sense. So, but this would be something should be like a shared decision where, where we provide as much information so we that think people can make an informed decision uh, in going forward. In general, that has to do with thoughts and feelings about side effects of therapy and, and the psychological outcome that people are willing to accept. We've discussed already on this podcast briefly and, and heard many times about genetics playing a role in both uh, prostate and breast cancer. Can you get into uh, the genetics factor for us a little bit? Yeah, so genetics is another one of the areas of my um, my research focus, uh, and that's this MORE program that Scott uh, spoke at the beginning. So we've long known that genetics play a pretty significant role in a lot of women's breast cancer. Uh, so the most common gene called BRCA1 and BRCA2. So Angelina Jolie has a mutation in one of these genes, and that's probably the most famous example. She's been very public about it. And so she had her breast removed to minimize the chance that she gets breast cancer and, and all that kind of stuff. But probably about 15 years ago, when I was still a, a, um, when I was still a medical student in uh, resident, we, we it became increasingly clear that some of these genes actually increase the risk of prostate cancer as well. And it looked like in some of these cases, the men not only did it increase the risk of getting prostate cancer, but those men that had this genetic background that got prostate cancer did a lot worse than expected. So there's been increasing evidence now that there is a genetic component to prostate cancer. Probably about 10% of men that get prostate cancer have some inherited uh, component that may be a single gene like BRCA1 or BRCA2 or, or a slew of other ones that we're now aware of or a combination of genes. The important part about it is that sometimes understanding the genetics of why someone gets a cancer allows us to personalize their care. So there's different drugs that work better. There's different strategies. For example, the, the kind of the canary in the coal mine example for prostate cancer is, is if men have a, a, a mutation in the BRCA2 gene and they develop prostate cancer, we treat them very aggressively because that can become a very aggressive cancer very shortly. And in some of the older studies, the average lifespan of a guy that got diagnosed with that prostate cancer was only five years, which is starkly different than the general population. So, so it clearly shows you that we just can't, we can't watch those cancers, for example. They need to be treated aggressively. But also when men have, unfortunately, even more aggressive cancer, sometimes knowing the genetics uh, of either the cancer itself, because there's something called a somatic mutation, which is a, a mutation in, uh, in a gene in the cancer that the person didn't inherit. Uh, or those that are inherited that allows us to make decisions about other management. So it's becoming increasingly important, even in prostate cancer. It's been known for years for breast cancer, but we should be thinking about genetics, people's family history, and in the event uh, that someone has either aggressive prostate cancer or they have prostate cancer and someone else in their family has it, consider doing this genetic test, both for them, but also for the rest of their family. And that's called cascade testing. For example, let's pretend I had a, uh, I had a genetic test and I was found to carry a BRCA2 mutation. Uh, 
I would then tell my brother, my sisters, uh, my parents, my cousins uh, that, hey, look, this runs in the family. You should consider to be tested. They are then tested. And if they are positive for this uh, familial genetic mutation, then they can enter high-risk screening programs. And that may save their life. Again, awesome information to know. And thanks for sharing it with us, doctor. And uh, it's kind of a good segue into kind of the next topic we want to talk about, and that's new technologies. We're, we're always hearing about a cure for cancer. Where, where are we at? Well, that's a question we get asked all the time, right? And, and I cure cancer every day. Uh, you know, I don't know what, what a, a cure means. Uh, the, major, the vast majority of men that get prostate cancer are cured of it. I think, I think um, what we're trying to do is obviously you want to cure more men. So I'm not saying that, you know, unfortunately 10% of men that diagnose with prostate cancer do die of the disease. But, but we want to cure more men with less side effects, better quality of life. And ideally, uh, in a world that's beyond my research um, focus, but try to prevent some of these cancers in the first place, of course. Um, but so, so technology has certainly allowed us to uh, improve our cure rates and, and decrease uh, toxicity. So quality of life and survivorship later on is, is so much better. So, for example, I'll use radiation as the example because obviously it's a technologically driven field. When I started here uh, as a staff at Sunnybrook 15 years ago, we thought we were, we thought we were the cat's ass. We, we, we had this treatment called IMRT, and it was, it was incredibly focused, a lot less side effects. It was a daily treatment Monday to Friday for eight weeks. So, you know, inconvenient, but we thought we were doing pretty good. Uh, now the radiation is standardly only five treatments, uh, the treatment called Sabre that Jack mentioned. It's incredibly precise. Uh, so we have very minimal side effects compared to even what we did back then. And I have a couple of trials open that are trying to push that envelope further. I have a trial open that's randomizing guys to two treatments versus five treatments because in some of our preliminary data, guys that had the two treatment had a better sexual quality of life long-term. Uh, and I have another trial on a machine called an MRI LINAC, which is a radiation machine built with an MRI in it. So we treat people in real time with the MRI running. And that's going to hopefully allow us to give the tumor that we can see on the MRI a high dose of radiation and try to minimize dose to the rest of the gland so we can minimize toxicity to the bladder, the rectum, and, and quite frankly, erections, which is one of the still the big things that men that get prostate cancer need to worry about long term. This is all technology driven. If you had told me 15 years ago that we'd be treating somebody with radiation in an MRI, I'd tell them they're crazy because an MRI is a big magnet and radiation causes electrons and electrons are negatively charged. So they, you, you, won't, you won't know where they're going to be in a magnet. They'll fly around like crazy. But thankfully, we have a lot of really smart physicists in this world and they figured that all out. So technology is dramatically changing. And I do see a point in the future where the side effects are incredibly low uh, so so people can be treated with either radiation or other forms of energy it could be ultrasound it could be laser don't get me wrong it, it doesn't have to be radiation but where the side effect profile is so low that maybe even guys won't go on the surveillance programs anymore because then they don't need biopsies and mris so you know it changes so fast that it's hard to predict what's going to happen. But even just in the last five years, you've seen dramatic changes. That's great. So you did mention some of the side effects of the treatment. Can you, can you touch a little bit on the, the survivorship with the new technology that's emerged? Yeah, so there's still risks, right? That's the, you know, that's the issue. I, I, I'm still an incredible proponent for surveillance and not treating people that don't need to be treated because we still ca cause changes. 
Um, you know, when we're talking about uh, surgery, which would be the other big way to treat prostate cancer, um, there's a, still a, a risk of serious uh, urinary leakage. Uh, that risk that, that really changes quality of life is probably less than 5%, but higher than 1%, so it's not, it's not zero. Probably about 1 in 10 guys will have a little bit of leakage. I just put a little pad down there. No one likes the idea of it, but it, it doesn't really change quality of life dramatically. Um, there's a, there's a, unfortunately still a significant risk of losing erections, uh, uh, or at least having penetrative sex after having had surgery because about half of the guys that have it will lose their erections. So sexual quality of life can be, can be dragged down. With radiation, um, the main risk is there's still about a 1% risk of significantly damaging the bowel. So having very thin blood vessels that bleed and need to be, uh, cauterized, uh, or fixed in that way. But there's about a 10 to 20% chance of having some change to the bowels or the bladder that although it's not life-changing, people don't like it. It tends to go away after two years, at least if you look at the way we look at things. I don't think it goes away. I think humans are just incredibly adaptable. And after having something for two years, you stop complaining about it, so we don't really notice anymore. So I think that that's the case. And with radiation, the, the, the risk of erectile uh, issues, so being able to have erections that are adequate enough for penetrative sex it's still probably about 20 to 30% of men start to lose them, um, which is not great. Some guys are, are remedied by the medications like Viagra and Salus and that kind of stuff. Uh, but that is, there's still a lot of improvement there. So, you know, these are still significant quality of life. You know, the funny thing is that there's, there's a large trial that took guys that with early cancer, and it was in the UK, and they randomized men to either surgery, radiation, which is the old radiation, not the fancy way we do it now, or surveillance. And what they showed is that um, if you looked at all these sophisticated tools and how to measure quality of life, you know, there was more guys in the surgery arm that lost erections and were, were leaking water. We know that. There was more guys in the radiation arm that had problems with their bowels or we call bowel bother. We know that. But if you looked at actual quality of life, there was no difference between all the arms. And the reality is that getting diagnosed with cancer, getting any form of treatment, and then the concern about recurrence coming back probably drags down the quality of life in general more than any one individual person. There's miserable people in each group that have really bad toxicity, which is understandable, but that gets washed out in the change of quality of life. So I think that as we provide better treatments with a higher chance of success and less overall side effects, overall quality of life will go up. But most of the research, particularly with early breast cancer and prostate cancer, I think now should be focused on survivorship because that's the main thing we're impacting. Few people are dying with these diseases with the modern treatments, but we're still impacting quality of life. Well, it's, uh, you just got me thinking big time here. <laughs> so I'm sure anybody listening to this uh, attentively is definitely uh, going to have the wheels turning in their head. Um, I've never heard anybody uh, as, you know, a common, uh, 30-year police officer here uh, give all this information like this. And I'm grateful you're doing it, uh, Dr. Vesperini. And while we have you here, Jack asked me to ask you the number of men with a prostate cancer diagnosis that are within your scope of active surveillance. I know you've mentioned the active surveillance. Uh, you've got to apparently have a clinical study going and, uh, yeah, so we have, it's, um, so active surveillance, which is the global standard of care for lower prostate cancer, started at Sunnybrook. Uh, it was 
the very first grant ever given by what was then called the Prostate Cancer Research Foundation, then became Prostate Cancer Canada, which unfortunately now no longer exists because it got sucked up by Canadian Cancer Society. Um, but it is a, and of course, this is way before my time. This is in the nineties. I was alive, but I wasn't a doctor back then. So, um, so what it, what it was, it was a crazy idea back then. It was, Hey, we shouldn't be treating these low grade prostate cancers because nobody's dying of it. And it, in the, in the, the initial three or four guys, people here that started the study, were getting kind of death threats from, from urologists and people saying that, you know, it was, it was they were terrible. But now that is kind of the global phenomenon. We are still the number, the largest and the oldest program in the world. I, I, I lead it now. So we have uh, over 1,700 men in our database that have been on or still are on surveillance here. Some as long as uh, it started in the mid-90s. So we're getting close to, you know, 25 plus years uh, of guys having been on, on surveillance uh, and, and, and it is really has changed practice around the world. Uh, I probably, I probably actively follow, uh, I'd say about half of those guys, maybe 800 men that continue to be followed here. And that's with blood tests, physical examinations, more increasing use of MRI scans, biopsy when they need it. Um, but it is, it has been a, a, a wonderful success story for Canada. Uh, for Toronto and, and Sunnybrook in particular in regards to, you know, some some crazy doctors way back in the 90s having this idea about maybe we shouldn't be treating people that don't need it. We're coming to the close here of our episode and we have a bit of a tradition where we ask our guests what their three wishes are and that can be um, vocation related, your personal life, uh, whatever you wish. So Jack, I'm going to kick it over to you for your three wishes. Well, Thanks, Emily. Since we're talking cancer in our topic today, I guess I'm going to sound repetitious, but I'm going to say to all men in the audience, get your PSA tested regularly. To all women in the audience, get your mammograms regularly. And I think we've heard that early detection, it may save your life and afford the medical professionals the optimum opportunities to facilitate your cancer recovery. That's great, Jack. Good advice. Uh, Dr. Vesperini, over to you. Ooh, that's a tough one. With all the craziness <laughs> going on in the world right now. I exactly. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, not to be too timely in regards to that. You know, I think that, not talking about the cancer stuff, I think Jack had some uh, good ones there. I'd like to see us to be less divisive. I think that division has gotten through, integrated into everything, and, and that includes for some reason, we no longer trust science, uh, which is a bit scary. Um, and I think that that's an increasing problem as, as time will go on. Um, so I, I wish there'd be more unity. I, I, I wish there was more civility. I'm not sure why we've become this society that just thinks it's okay to be driving around with flags saying F this and that, and, and that seems to be normalized. Um, and I think that that's, you know, in these little, these little, examples they they go into everything so we have it in medicine people don't agree with different treatment options for prostate cancer and there can be quite division between that so i wish that would kind of go away and then you know to 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 not try to end too big of a serious note i just i really wish the maple leafs would win the stanley cup (laughs) (laughs) amen i guess we could call you a dreamer then (laughs) (laughs) he's not the only one 
Jack, do you have any last words? I'm sorry about that. I was—I got hung up on the Leafs thing. Jack, I'm going <laughs> to—I was out thinking of them with the Stanley Cup, and I completely lost it. So, That's Jack, <laughs> let's kick it over to you, Jack. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Yes, a couple points I'd make. So, if you're told that you have cancer, I would say be positive. Easier said than done, I know, but. Uh, my found in my case, if you think survivor, not victim, uh, the victim, as I understand it and have had the experiences in my peer support past, they dwell on what they cannot control, whereas the survivor dwells on what they can. I think with cancer, you have to be positive and you have to put your hands in the hands of the good doctors. And I would also want to put a shout out to the OPPA because the excellent benefits that we carry as retirees it's paramount when you're dealing with the costly cancer treatments and recovery. So keep on being good. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Jack, for this idea. Uh, we're very grateful. Uh, as we've stated before, uh, we're going to give the last word here to uh, Dr. Danny Vesperini of Sunnybrook Hospital. Uh, in a nutshell, what uh, should the listener of this podcast take away and do after listening to this? I think spread awareness. So I think as Jack did with his brother, um, awareness is key. We see this all the time uh, in, in cancer practice and clinical practice where um, within families, within friends, that awareness uh, uh, allows someone to, to get tested. So have a conversation uh, with your family, have a conversation with uh, your your family doctor, your whoever's taking care of you. You know, cancer is not a dirty word. Uh, discuss it with people. You'll you, as as Sir Jack has experienced. You find out very quickly that lots of people around you actually have cancer once they find out you have it, and, and people come out of the woodwork. So have a frank discussion regarding the pros and cons of screening, whether that be breast screening, colonoscopies, uh, prostate cancer screening with your GP. Decide what's right for you, uh, and, and and go ahead and get screened. Well, thank you very much, Jack and uh, Dr. Vesprini. It's been an uh, important uh, bit of time for everybody listening and important information coming through. So we appreciate you both taking the time uh, to be with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Happy to, happy to help on any way I can. You have been listening to retired OPP officer and cancer survivor Jack Harkness and Dr. Danny Vesprini sharing their insights regarding prostate cancer and breast cancer. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. A new episode drops every other Friday morning. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at communications at oppa.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay safe.